SQL Down Under is a podcast for professionals working in the SQL Server community. SQL Server is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions expressed during the podcast are individual opinions and may not reflect the opinions of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing Show 42 with guest Ryan Dunn. Our guest today is Ryan Dunn. Ryan's a senior technical evangelist for SQL Data Services. So welcome, Ryan. Thank you, Greg. Appreciate you having me on the show. Excellent. Well, as I do with everyone, uh, how did you ever come to be here in the first place, uh, involved with SQL Server or SQL Data Services? Well, I started my career actually right out of college in uh, consulting. So for about 10 years or so, I was actually a consultant, and during that time and right around the college time frame, I started um, doing some development in Microsoft Access, which at the time I believe was 2.0 or something around there, and I yep. started doing development and learning VBA and these different things, and then as the database got progressively bigger and bigger, um, of course, it got moved to SQL Server, and I think it was 6.0 or 6.5, <laughs> something mm-hmm. like that. Yes. And in these different operations, I continued getting more and more technical. Originally, I was never—I I had never intended to be a technical person. I actually got a degree in statistics and in uh, operations management, with the idea that I would be managing the supply chain in a warehouse. But in the consulting role, you just take, you know, whatever the client gives you, and it became more and more data-focused and more and more just technical job programming, data analysis, and access, and SQL Server, and eventually uh, Oracle work, actually, for, for a number of years. Um, during that time, I decided I was going to get focused real deep into the Microsoft set of technologies, and I jumped on the opportunity to learn XML when it first came out, and XSLT, and then went and took ASP.ASP at the time. Then yep. I went and moved to ASP.NET. I figured, hey, I can do this. I took a role within uh, the consulting organization I was at where they were splitting their infrastructures, and I learned Active Directory, and I became an expert in Active Directory, uh, eventually published a book on programming Active Directory with a co-author of mine. And finally, through this, I got hooked into the Microsoft um, Most Valuable Professional MVP program. Mm -hmm. So during this whole technical path, going through, you know, starting to statistics and finally getting to just heavy programming and finally moving into the community and starting to help other developers, which actually earned me the MVP award, um, I guess I was making contacts within Microsoft and the surrounding communities. And what ended up happening is my current manager gave me a call one day and said, Hey, Ryan, you know, we have a great job here in the evangelism group at Microsoft. And you seem like a guy who can, uh, you know, be excited about something, talk to people and help show them. And you have some practical experience consulting with customers and kind of understanding their pain points. 
you want to come over here and work with me? And so yeah. that's pretty much how I ended up at Microsoft, and that was about a year and a half ago. So tell us about your current role. My current role at Microsoft is I am uh, the technical evangelist for SQL data services or, and SQL services. Um, I say and SQL services because it, it probably bears a little bit of explanation um, the way the branding has kind of worked out at this point. So PDC 2008, um, the big news or one, at least one of some of the big announcements were the, the Azure Services platform, which is composed of a number of building block services and what we term essential services. So the essential services in this case is Windows Azure, the compute and storage service. And then on top of that, we have things like the .NET services, which is the relay, uh, workflow, and access control. Then we have SQL services, which within there we have uh, some complementary data services, which is the SQL data service and data sync, uh, reference data, ETL, kind of BI capabilities. Um, So my role within this is I got involved when SQL when it was SQL data services was being called SQL Server Data Services and Sitka. And as the evangelist, what they have me do is they take I take a look at these bleeding edge technologies and I start to build content and demos and figure out how everything works. Then I engage with the Microsoft field, the local folks who are in the subsidiaries and talk to the customers day in and day out because I'm an evangelist at corporate and I don't directly work with customers on a day-to-day basis typically. Mm. And my job at this point is to get that content, get up to speed, kind of figure out how these things work, prepare the field to talk to customers about it, and also prepare partners and global ISVs and and um, folks that want to come in and learn about this and just get up to speed and, and take an early adoption. I'll get involved and I'll help those folks. Ah, that's good. Yeah, I think I first came across you. I was actually at a Metro training in Singapore uh, last year sometime. That's right. Uh, or something like that for Visual Studio, indeed. Yeah. yeah. The the thing I was going to ask then, if we look at what's available, I, I know um, most of this cloud stuff, particularly to uh, most of the DBA and developers I talk to at the moment, it all seems kind of futuristic, and, and uh, yeah, there, there's no doubt there's that. I sat and watched the videos from PDC, which I'd probably encourage people to do because they're, they're online as well. Mm-hmm. But just in general, what sort of things do you see, I suppose, what stage is it at now, and what do you see coming in the near future? Well, I, w- I would say we're still fairly nascent right now, and I mean that in an industry sense in addition to uh, you know Microsoft specifically. Uh, I think you know it's become increasingly clear that, People are looking at cloud services as a way to increase the agility of the applications they build, you know, fast provisioning, numerous servers, get that instant scale, be able to spin up as many instances or store petabytes of data without worrying how to, how do I provision that? How do I buy that infrastructure and things like that? Um, yeah, I see that that is quite compelling at the moment. I, what, I, what I'm sort of striking in the areas that I'm seeing it quite a bit, similar sort of things uh, in areas like Microsoft Exchange where I look at people running uh, products like Exchange and years ago those sort of things would always be in-house mm-hmm. but what I'm seeing increasingly is people paying to uh, the, the live services or paying their $50 a user to, to Google or whatever 
but to, uh, to Gmail. But either way, they're looking at just rapidly rolling that sort of thing out and having somebody else provision it. And what I've found kind of interesting with that is that the most compelling arguments seem to be that instead of doing all this planning and everything, I can literally pay some money over and even be running later this afternoon. Yeah, and, and, and that's so different to anything we we normally do in the industry. Sure, and, and you know, I've worked with uh, you know many clients, and, and your example spot on. You look at like a project that you would typically do, and let's let's pick, take take a big bank or something like that. They're going to implement a new system. They kind of make a crazy guess about how many users are going to be using it and you know, and whatnot, and then they go and they start buying servers, and they just buy a ton of servers. They bring it in, and they start development. And in the meantime, you know, something happens in the industry. For instance, the real estate uh, debacle that's going on here in the U.S. right now, and the mortgage, uh, you know, the subprime mortgage meltdown and everything. Yeah. And the business that they were designing for in 2005, uh, 2006, is no longer the business that the, that's actually happening today. In the meantime, they've sunk two years worth of effort into it, bought all the infrastructure, and their payout is, is nothing. Where if they had taken an approach of using something like cloud services, where they build the system, get it running in the cloud, it proves popular. They just provision multiple instances, building parallelism into it. They would have been able to scale up to, if it became popular or became a business critical asset they would have been able to do this in the meantime if you know this mortgage meltdown happened they can actually scale it off or turn it off it's one of the huge benefits of this pay as you grow now that being said there are some challenges of course uh, working with cloud services and 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 you're going to talk to a lot of people and say hey my, my data is never going to move outside of my control and mm. and there's two ways of looking at this one is do you really? I, I ask customers sometimes. I say, okay, you don't want to. You don't want your data being out there in this mythical cloud, right? You have to have it in your control. And I say, well, what do you currently do for your payroll today? And they say, oh, well, we're using Salesforce.com or we're using, you know, some check printing company over here. So you're outsourcing your payroll. And what about HR? Oh, Salesforce.com. Okay, you're outsourcing your HR. What? about your email oh we use hosted exchange you know mm. and then you start to break down these objections and they say oh you know what it's really not that big a deal to have the data outside of my data center now there's going to be certain geopolitical restrictions where that's always going to be the case mm. germany canada etc they can't have the stuff out of the data center out out of the country excuse me or out of their data center in some cases and you know you're going to have to you're going to always have to have some sort of local storage in those situations but for a lot of people, it makes sense to take a look at these cloud services and say, this is a new way of building an application. I can be comfortable with the security and the model that's being proposed here because we have an SLA and we have a guarantee from someone like Microsoft or whoever the provider is that my data is going to be safe, it's going to be backed up, it's going to be you know uh, secured on-premise better than I could probably do myself. Well, that, that's what's sort of interesting in that, uh, as I said, when I speak to, say, the Gmail experience by comparison, mm -hmm. when I first configured that a year or so, a year or two back, I actually fully expected that that would be one of the least reliable services that I deal with. 
And yet, ironically, I would have to say, apart from one outage I can recall, um, it's actually been probably the most reliable mail provider, and I deal with about six or seven every day. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is that all the ones that I connect to that are run within within companies tend to be the ones that aren't very reliable. Um, I think uh, companies like, uh, you know, I said Google, but Microsoft and other companies or even huge telcos are probably on their worst day going to do a better job of looking after the data than most companies would. Yeah, and there's, there's, you could talk to some uh, CTOs or, you know, experienced architects at different companies and, and they're going to tell you, well, we have to have 99.9% uptime, 99.9% reliability or five nines or whatever it is. And then you ask them and you say, well, what do you got today? You know, you have a system today. What is your uptime today? And they look at you and they're like, well, we don't exactly know. Because they actually, in practice, I mean, they, they think they need the five nines or whatever it is, but they don't even know what they currently have today. And they could be at 98 or 99, and they have no idea. And that could be just fine for the application that they're building. And I think as the cloud services mature, and in this is industry-wide, as cloud services mature, it's going to be the standard to which other services are going to be held, right? The on-premise yeah. is not going to be the gold standard of service. It's going to be the cloud services. You have providers, you know, like Microsoft. It's just the amount of, of money and manpower that they've spent in these data centers and monitoring these services and having this uptime is just phenomenal. And for you to try to replicate that on-premise is going to be difficult, not impossible, but very difficult. Yeah. Another aspect of this I find interesting is that I I think when I talk to most business owners, mm-hmm. they actually don't want to run data centers or, That's right. uh, or systems or things like that. And and I think the um, uh, so many of the IT people I talk to, I don't think they understand how little the business people actually want to be involved in having on-premises IT. Yeah, it's, we hear this from our ISVs and for customers all the time. And they say, you know, if I could get out of the business completely of running a data center and you guys could just do it for me, that would be ideal. And with the set of services we've developed, we're getting close. You know, one of the mm-hmm. biggest challenges that we have is managing identities and being able to control access to data. And yeah. with the access control service in, in the Azure services platform and with the Geneva framework and Geneva server and things like that, we're getting closer to where you really can do that. You can transition from on-premise to cloud and back with a single identity, which gives it that kind of on-premise feel. To the user, they don't have to know that they're interacting with a service that doesn't even live in the same geography as them, but that identity transfers seamlessly between the services. You're authenticated and authorized, um, and, and things just work. And when you have a, serv- a service like SQL Data Services that works with the access control service, you can do some pretty powerful things. You can federate with different partners. You can federate with customers. So as an ISV, you can see these very powerful scenarios where you could be the smallest man on the block. You could be two, three people. But with cloud services, no one knows, right? You can put up a 20, 30, 40, 100 instances running your application, use an identity service like uh, the access control. 
that then federates with your client's Active Directory and then grants them delegated access into SQL data services on the back end, and you have this multi-tenanted, huge system set up, and you're the tiniest shop, and you're just paying for what you use. It's yeah. a it's a very very exciting scenario and kind of a it's a real levelizer or you know it really levels the playing field for the small ISVs versus the giant ISVs with these huge infrastructure infrastructure investments. Yeah, I think um, organizational agility is going to be one of the key things that pushes this. Uh, uh, I look also in the idea that you know if I look today and I say would I run a web server on-premises, mm-hmm. the answer is almost never yes. Uh, whereas if I roll back to when I started being involved in websites and things, it was very, very common to want to implement the web, uh, website on your own systems exactly. uh, running in your own premises. But I would never even consider doing that today in almost any scenario. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't help but think eventually much of the data will end up feeling exactly the same way. Yeah, I I totally agree with you. I mean that's a, exactly what's happening, you know, in the industry and and it's not just one of the one of the things you have to think about though is there's there's a continuum between, you know, on-premise and what the Azure services are actually offering. So in between there you have the hosting. So in the case of like you you could rent some machines in a data center to run three four instances of of your website or you know a SQL server you could stand up an instance in you know Rackspace or any other hosting provider you can think of but there's still a difference between that and what SQL data services and the Azure services platforms doing right mm-hmm. they're they're really virtualizing all those services the the management, the maintenance, and all those kind of things. And they're abstracting that platform and just raising it another level up. So on-premise, you need to provision the hardware, you need to patch the machine, you need to do all this stuff. You take it to a hosting provider, you still got to configure everything. You might be responsible for patching depending on uh, you know how your relationship with that, that is. But at the end of the day, you have 10 boxes in a data center, and they just happen to not be in your data center. Yeah. When you come over to something like SQL Data Services or Windows Azure, you look at it and you say, well, I don't know how many, you know, I don't know really anything about the machine and I don't need to know. All I know is here's a chunk of code that's going to run in Windows Azure and I need data that roughly looks like this shape in SQL Data Services. It could get really big. It might be really small. Just go ahead and put it there and you worry about load balancing it and shifting it around to the right partitions and, and being able to serve that data out for me. I don't worry about the log files. I don't worry about, you know, figuring out which spindle do I need to, how do I separate that again and, and get the best performance. Uh, I don't have to worry about putting more mich- memory in the machine or patching it or anything like that. And it, and you talk to folks who are, who are building applications, they look at it and they say, this is the real value, you know, being able to do this and worry about my actual application and not about the stuff that has to go into making that application run. Yeah. Yeah, I find it interesting, even, as I said, uh, clients that I have now that have moved from an in-house hosted uh, arrangement into uh, larger data centers. And one of the things that's quite nice at the moment is even the larger data centers already allow them, if they have a busy period, to spin up additional servers, to make them go away again. Mm Mm-hmm. 
uh, when times are quiet. So, I mean, I could well imagine uh, a school or something that needs a whole heap of people for certain weeks of the year and then almost nothing uh, for another few weeks and then uh, exactly. you know, loads again. And uh, I could imagine payment models that would quite allow you to spin up and down the the degree of um, computing that's available. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it was interesting that uh, uh, Mihal was sort of suggesting almost that uh, down the track we might buy computing by the kilowatt hour rather than any other measure, uh, <laughs> just given the fact that power is the, the, the main thing that really matters. Yeah, I've heard the exact same thing. That's true. <laughs> Yep, yeah, and, and so you look at you look at the amount of you look at where the real costs are in data centers today, other than mm-hmm. in some some markets where it's real estate like downtown Chicago or something like that. Maybe yeah. uh, it's definitely the power. So you see these huge facilities going up in areas where the where the kilowatts are cheap, right? Yeah, yeah. So exactly. So based based on the, the rationale as to why we want this sort of thing to uh, appear then still when I look at it, it looks to me like it's a long, long way from that. But, I mean, you, you might think it's closer. So let's talk about just where is it at the moment in terms of what sort of services are available or about to be available. Um, well, it, like I say, in terms of the Windows uh, Windows Azure and .NET services and SQL data services, these are these are definitely the first crack at these. In, in a sense, it's nascent. Um, but at the same time, I think there's some pretty interesting scenarios and some pretty powerful things you can do with it. I think over time, as we roll out more and more features, you're going to see things like, you know, better management. Um, you're going to see more adoption by other ISVs just to make consuming these services easier. Uh, the ubiquity of broadband being able, you know, at the end of the day, these things are, these things are internet services. So you have to have some sort of connection between uh, the on-premise or off-premise of your clients, uh, ubiquity of broadband goes up and, and the utility of these services goes up, obviously. Um, today with SQL data services, um, we, we have a, we have a model in place called the ACE model. Um, if you went to any of the PDC sessions, you kind of understand the idea of these authorities, these units of geolocation, the container that kind of, kind of like a database and entities which are kind of like rows within it. Um, you can build some pretty interesting applications just with that model. I mean, that will build quite a few apps that you would do today. Um, certainly, there's room for improvement, and there's some features that customers really want um, to kind of bring it closer to that fully relational model that they're used to from SQL Server on-premises. But today, I would say, for the person looking at this, um, new applications, probably very very relevant and probably you should if you're if you're thinking of new applications i'd really take a look at at least architecting your solution such that it could move to cloud services easily uh, which means de- things like decoupling identity um, having providers just for your data system and and don't make some assumptions about how the data interacts physically um, at, at your at your service and then if you have existing applications, I'd say, well, maybe there's a stepping stone in between that needs to be addressed, but existing applications, you can use some of the capabilities maybe to extend or to augment for things like archiving or uh, this data hub scenario where you want to share data from existing on-premises assets. It's very 
it's very powerful to be able to say, why don't I just take my on-premises data in SQL Server or whatever it is and sync that up to the cloud and then have partners and customers and anyone else sync down portions of that data and maintain control of it locally and then sync their changes back up and do that and kind of expand the system out at the periphery uh, using cloud services. There's still yeah, some think- work to be done, though, definitely to take an existing on-premises application and just straight port it over to the cloud. I mean, yeah, there's That's a lot. It, of- I, I think people have this idea that, you know, we need to be able to just drop it in as a replacement exactly uh, and it'll work somewhat like the existing databases do. But I, I actually think that it'll be most successful for applications that are completely architected for this sort of service. Yeah, it, uh, it, and that's, I mean, that's the case here for, for sure. There's there's no magic bullet today that's going to say, I have an on-premises application, I can just do a few tweaks, uh, and it's just going to run perfectly in the cloud. The, yeah. Just the, I mean, the, think, the latency. I think it's understanding, I think it's understanding that it's not just like a hosted copy of SQL Server. So uh, that that's not, the sort of thing that uh, we're sort of looking at right now. Right, that's correct. And so, yeah, I think it looks to me very much like I could imagine how I would build applications that would take advantage of it, Mm -hmm. but they would be somewhat different applications to the ones ones I'm building today. Yeah. I think the gap is going to close a little bit there too, though. Yeah. There's going to be, I mean, today you look at ways the SQL data services looks and you say, well, this looks really... You know, the diff- distance between this and what SQL Server is is rather large in some mm-hmm. sense, uh, especially getting your mind around how that data model works compared to rows and columns and relational features and joins and the stuff you're used to. Um, yep. And then there's this path, though, that we've always talked about. And if you watch some of the talks from Patrick McElroy or Gopal or anybody at PDC, and they talked about, here's the, here's the trajectory, though, of the service. And that is, like, more and more of these database features being turned on such that you can get that relational features just like you had in the database before and, and not give up functionality or have to redesign too much because there are some things that we can do to turn those features on in the underlying platform. Yeah. I gather part of the issue at the moment sounds as though it's uh, the, one of the limitations on being able to open some of these things up are more a case of trying to work out how the manageability would work at the back end more so than anything else. In, in some cases, that, that could be. Um, you know, we, you what we, what they've done intentionally is kind of limited the surface area where things can go wrong. So the query yeah. model, for instance, is different. You're not sending T-SQL into SQL data services today. Um, and the query model that they've chosen, it, well, when it boils down to SQL statements for the actual back end, it's a constrained set. So they know what that query plan is going to look like, and they know you're not going to send in something horrible that hogs all the processing at that node. Uh, mm. Because fundamentally this is a cloud service that's truly multi-tenanted, we have to make sure that you know we don't have one person monopolizing uh, a node in an endless loop or something like that and degrading service for others. And yeah. so they've intentionally kind of shrunk down the feature set that they're going to do, and it was all with the idea of let's take the smallest thing that's useful and get it running and make sure we can run it at scale. And then as we prove that we can do it and everything is working, we'll start to turn on the features that people are asking for and that we know 
can, that we've proven out can scale as well. Well, so that's probably a good point to just take a break for a few minutes and we'll come back. I think then we might uh, talk about the sort of concerns and uh, issues that people would raise in, re- in relation to this. Sure. As well as community resources such as this podcast, SQL Down Under offer mentoring services and both private and public training options. If you need to get your project back on track or if you need to get it off to a good start, why not give us a call? We have also recently introduced a series of online courses available in both Asia-Pacific and US-UK time zones. In particular, the first course that's offered in this series is Query Performance Tuning. You'll find details at www.sqldownunder.com. Welcome back from the break. Uh, what I also normally get people to do is just, is, is there a life outside SQL Server? <laughs> yeah, for me, my life kind of revolves at this point around uh, my daughter. So just uh, just seven short weeks ago, uh, my wife and I had our first child. Ah, congratulations. Excellent. <laughs> thank you. Are you sleeping and, yet? <laughs> well, <laughs> that's just it. I'm running on minimal sleep at this point. She's a... You know, she's not a difficult child or anything at this point, but hey, you know, they gotta feed every like two, three hours, uh, for the, for the first couple of months and, yeah. well, she, she likes to wake up and get fed and make it known that she's hungry. So, yeah, I'm not getting a huge amount of sleep, but I'm loving it. That's, uh, ah, good. that's my focus at this point. <laughs> Excellent. No, that's good. Well, the, the thing that, um, I, I sort of think we probably need to run through is just the, the sort of issues that people tend to bring up whenever I sort of mention concepts like cloud services. Now, the first one is the one that you raised in terms of having the data on or off premises. Now, while I was at the past summit, there was a bit of a discussion I was in on where people were discussing, well, what if I had my data here, but I had maybe my business intelligence somewhere else? And ironically, I was thinking if I had to choose between those, I'd probably have it the other way around, where if I had a large amount of uh, transactional data, I'd probably rather have that in the cloud, but the strategic information I'd probably rather hold close to the chest. So (laughs) I'm not Uh sure. But there's the whole discussion about data on or off premises. But So you're saying that a lot of that data is already living off-premise in in various applications. So I think if people take a look at, at what they actually do today or businesses and they take a look at what actually is on-premise, they'd be surprised about how much of their sensitive data is already off at mm. some service provider. Um, but specifically with SQL data services, we, we get that feedback a lot. And, and like I said, it could be it could be a geopolitical concern, and there's nothing we can do about that, right? If the government of Germany says this cannot leave the country and we happen to be based in the U.S. or, you know, not in Germany at the, at that moment in time, there's not a lot we can do to have that data there. Do you and know what sort of data they, they tend to apply that to? I, I know I've come across that same thing, and it was even things like oil drilling rigs data and mm-hmm. things like that. But what sort of data typically has that sort of limitation that can't move out of a country? Um, t- well, what we typically see that in is is government Anything having to do with government data or yep. personally identifiable data uh, for certain 
for certain countries. And since the law is obviously very different <laughs> depending on the geography you're in, it's yeah. pretty tough sometimes running a, a worldwide service like this to be in absolute you know, sync with every possible combination of what the law is. So if anything, you know, Microsoft has a commitment to coming in and, and putting these data centers where it makes sense, um, but there's probably some markets that we might never be able to get into yeah. and, and, and address this. It's just, you know, it's just one of those situations. Do you, do you suspect, though, that down the track, um, many of those markets will end up changing their own mind about it? Um, because the the sort of thing I look at is that, for example, in Australia, we had a very isolated uh, way we did phone systems, for example. Mm-hmm. And the argument always used to be that we had higher standards um, in the phone system. And so every piece of equipment that you went to attach was made to go through uh, sort of loops of um, accreditation and so on that were much, much higher than were required elsewhere in the world. Now, you mm-hmm. might look at that on the surface and say, well, what a great idea you have a much, much better phone system. But the converse is that it means all of the phone equipment that's made for all the rest of the world couldn't be used here. Mm-hmm. And all you could purchase locally was the sort of Rolls-Royce type <laughs> equipment that happened to be built to that specification or things that yeah. were locally. And eventually that's that's all been pretty much torn down now and mm-hmm. because I think it ends up being counterproductive in that the businesses in your country uh, end up suffering from lack of agility and lack of things that are available to to com- uh, companies in other countries. So I'm, I'm, yeah. I could imagine for some government things they might still think that way, but I I have a f- I just do wonder that down the track if if your country is competing with the rest of the world and the rest of the world is able to be agile. I'm not so sure that um, that all the countries will eventually be able to just keep going. Yeah, yeah. Well, sorry, that's just how it is. Um, yeah, I, I would. I think you're probably right. I think from a business perspective, you're going to have the competition that's ultimately going to be more agile than you if, if you can't if you can't do something like this, uh, operate in different jurisdictions with with data where you need to. Um, but like you said, I think. <laughs> just in from experience, uh, some government entities are probably not going to budge, and there's yeah, yeah. good reasons for that. Yeah. I can imagine sure. the government not, but for yeah. other companies, that um, unfortunately it ends up being a counter argument where it would be a reason for companies not to operate in the country. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, no, it, could have the, it could have the counterproductive argument that if you can't be competitive if you're based in the country, nowadays it's a big village. I mean, you could base sure. yourself somewhere else. So it, it's sure, and and that's the beauty of the cloud services too, right? I mean, you don't you don't really have to know where where the stuff is coming from as long as you're relatively geographically located. Latency doesn't become too big of an issue. Yeah, uh, you can put it anywhere. Um, it's a, it will affect a little bit on what you can store, but but otherwise. Uh, now you you were talking about BI and about you know having this vast amounts of data out in the cloud, and and I think that's a really interesting scenario that we customers have come to us about, and they've said, well, you know, I would love to be able to take these huge data sets, stuff that I archive off the tape today or, yep. or whatever it is. I'd love to be able to just kind of put that up into the cloud and have this idea of of a live archive. Maybe it's not as fast as the on-premises version. And that's that's another a- interesting aspect is that yeah. tiered, tiered services where maybe mm-hmm. the access performance is totally different for and certain types we, of data to other data. 
Yeah, we we have you know we have customers doing that today. They're you know they're they're on premises, highly cached, very very fast. Usually it's about temporally revo- relevant data. So something yep. like the last three weeks is is going to get a lot of activity, and then as time goes on, you kind of fade that off into archive and eventually delete it. Um, in the mortgage industry, uh, as another example, you, there's a flurry of activity of loan documentation right up to the point where the loan closes, and you can have lots and lots and lots of access to this data. And then once the loan closes, you don't do much with it, but you have to maintain that data somewhere in case it ever has to be queried, and usually through the life of the loan or through the servicing of the loan, and that can be like 30, 40 years in some cases. Yeah. And what they do today is they either buy tons and tons of hard drives or they put it on tape and they archive it off to DVD or something like that. Well, with a data service like this, you can have that tiered uh, data access. And you say, well, you know, I'm going to pay a storage cost, but I'm going to pay a storage cost no matter what. However, I just pay for, you know, a little bit in terms of application responsiveness, maybe a little less performance because the latency but I get this kind of cold data to me, and it's much more has a higher degree of utility for for users. So, like your bank today, why why can't you look up your bank statement from seven years ago? Yes. I mean, if you really wanted to know what you gave grandma, you know, what you wrote on that check seven years ago, why can't we get that bank image? You know, today, and it's a limitation of, of just the data storage. And, and something like SQL Data Services really changes that. You can, you can do that. You can put all this data out there. Now, customers also want to take that data, though, and they want to do something interesting with it. They want to, you know, report on it and you know, build cubes and whatnot. The capabilities are not quite there today in SQL Data Services and with the BI capabilities, but it's something that we're, we're investing a lot in. So you can be sure that at some point in the future we're going to have the same sort of capabilities that you come to expect on BI because it's just going to be critical when you have this mass of data out in the cloud. You're going to want to report. You're going to want to do that BI. You're not going to want to pull down a terabyte or a petabyte of data to do that local analysis. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the the other thing is that I see organizations all the time that archive this sort of information, yet if they ever have to retrieve it, they often mm-hmm. don't even have systems that can read it anymore. That's right. Yeah. They, they get the tape, and you know, the the cost of, of getting the tape and then trying to fi- find a machine that reads it, it's it's comical in, in some cases, yeah. Yeah, they, they convince themselves they're actually in a, in a good position with those sort of things, where, where they're usually not. Um, yeah. Another aspect, of course, the other big one, okay, let's tackle the big one. The big one is privacy. Mm-hmm. And so the whole concept of, you know, I... How confident can we be that the data will remain private? Right, and, and so you, at this point today, that's it's more of an SLA guarantee. So mm-hmm. they're written into the contract. There's SLA. So if Microsoft breaks the SLA, you can sue them or whatever your your avenue of relief is. But I think what you're what you really want to talk about is is there going to be a technical guarantee? That there's privacy, and, and there's. Well, I think today, it's both. I think it's both because look, I mean, I look at companies always talk about wanting technical guarantees for these sorts of things, but the mm-hmm. reality is most of them. I mean, how many people, for example, or how many of us um, deal with Microsoft on a daily basis and have NDAs and things like that? And there's just tons of private information out there, 
and it's all really protected on the basis that you know if you do the wrong thing, there are consequences. Yeah, and that, that's going to be that. That's definitely going to be in the SLA. There's guarantees of privacy. You know, we're not going to be mining the data for you know ads or whatever it is that that you would want to do a usage pattern or figure out who you are or try to tie things together or anything like that. You know, your data is your data when it comes to SQL data services. Um, but there is kind of some people say, okay, well that's great. What about you know, I get subpoenaed or you know, whatever it is that you, know, you get subpoenaed and, and you have to turn over the data. Well, I mean, yeah, you're going to have to comply with the law wherever you wherever you operate. So that that is a possibility. There are some things you can. And of course, do. the question is whose law? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Given the fact you might be U.S. but ba- you might be Iceland based, mm-hmm. and, uh, and the company might be based in you know, South Africa or something. I mean, the, yeah. so the question is whose law could could apply to that? So, and, and I'm not a lawyer. All I all I know is that it, whatever jurisdiction applies is the one that we're gonna mm-hmm. <laughs> we're gonna have to respect. I so think there's gonna I, be some interesting discussions know. though about whose juris- jurisdiction does apply. And yeah. it's, it's an area where, at the moment, uh, when I look at the whole Internet, I mean, there are so many things that that's just not resolved, and yet they're bubbling along in the background. I mean, for example, I can't post a, a website in Australia that does uh, refers to, let's say, somebody else in a libelous way, mm-hmm. yet there's nothing to stop me having a page, and the first page is just a link to a site hosted in the US that then does exactly the same thing. <laughs> and so you, you get into these entire discussions about uh, <laughs> you know, whose whose law is it, and it just becomes, I think, it's kind of interesting. I think the idea of having these cross-national applications becoming commonplace, um, mm-hmm. I, I think it's going to become a really, really big issue as to who has what jurisdiction over what. I think someone internally at Microsoft had, had said, and, and they were they were probably joking, but it, it's probably closer to true than we care to admit. So the limiting factor of a lot of these cloud services is not the technology; it's getting the right number of lawyers engaged in all the various jurisdictions to smooth out how this is going to work. Yes. But you know, you look at you look at like you know MSN Messenger or you know the live services that are out there today, and they're in so many different places worldwide. Mm. And they've already done that work, so you can but imagine all, that we're there are also issues already coming up. I mean, there's the the whole discussion with say uh, uh, global companies that say when they operate in China, for example, cooperating mm-hmm. with Chinese authorities and allowing them to you know monitor and deal with all the transmissions in an, in yeah. an application even. Um, mm-hmm. And whether or not the users are aware of that or not and so on. And, and those same sort of things must end up applying, but just in a much, much bigger fashion. Uh, so yeah, I'll be totally intrigued as to where that goes. But I suppose the next level is, um, is, is, is it an expectation that people would have all their data encrypted when it's thrown up to the cloud anyway? I think for some customers, that is definitely an expectation. Um, we've we've made it clear at this point that is not happening. The data is is on the clear. If someone was to break through into the data center and steal disks, uh, you know they would have data in the clear. Um, however, that's, that's highly unlikely that. that is. But that's data that you haven't encrypted. But the question mm-hmm. is, what about if I have everything encrypted before it goes up and down anyway? 
And that is exactly what what one of the technical things that we've been investigating is how do we how do we do that? How do we take encryption where I mean the ideal situation is you manage the keys, you have a, a symmetric yes. key or whatever it is on your side, you're encrypting the data and then you store it with us. Well, you can do actually do that today. The problem comes in is that it becomes opaque to us, and we can't query it without you doing something clever, like including maybe pre-computed hash values of things you might want to search on or join on, and then having an API that then says, you know, where last name equals the hash of an encrypted value, you know, and then you can do the search. Um, but we want to make that seamless, and I know that there's there's interest in being able to uh, have this encryption so that it's secure on disk, uh, the customer is the only one that can see it no matter what, um, and, and, and be able to still query and get into that data. Now, there's some work to be done in that, but it's definitely something we've heard from our customers and, and one of the things that we're looking at. Yeah. So in terms of what you would describe as deliverable today, most of the things that were shown at PDC, uh, the, the data access looked very much like big dictionaries or entity attribute value type mm-hmm. tables, effectively. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the, that is the, the model we started with today. Um, if you, if you attended Patrick McElroy's talk, uh, he had alluded to the fact that in the future, one of the things that we're going to be doing is actually introducing things like schema and more traditional, what you would term traditional relational concepts. So constraints and, you know, more of the idea of, of, uh, you know, relationships between your data being expressed. Um, you know, it's not there today, as you mentioned, but it is definitely on the roadmap. So, what I look at today in terms of things there, it looks like it would be fairly suitable for like an object persistence layer or something like that, um, where I could effectively not serialize an object, but I mean, might, well, I suppose close to, um, mm-hmm. you just push objects effectively or properties of objects up and down to the data store. Yeah, and, and in fact... Um it, it w- does work very well for that um, with simple type objects. Obviously, there's some things that it, it doesn't do very well, like nested arrays and things like that. But for mm-hmm. you know typical DTO uh, data transfer objects, you know strings, numbers, date times, booleans, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, it works great for that. In fact, um, the idea that you just said, which is of serializing objects, is exactly what you can do with the service um, today. The the payload format, if you look at it carefully, is actually XML serializer compatible. Yep. So if you were to return an entity of kind customer and your customer in a CLR code um, matched the same shape, you could actually just serialize it directly into that customer object from the service. Yep. Now, that is exactly actually how the REST library that I had built works. It uses the XML serializer and it takes CLR objects and it does that round tripping for you and it uses the properties as what would be the name value pairs inside of SQL data services. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's interesting. So uh, look, the, the next thing that people would normally raise would be availability. So mm-hmm. you know, again, if I don't have it on premises, um, 
you know, do I have less of a chance of it being available? So what sort of SLAs have you got in mind? Well, we haven't announced anything uh, at this point. I know they're still working through, um, you know, what levels, what contractual guarantees. However, the I can tell you the, the general answer is going to be very good <laughs> SLA yeah. and, and probably probably um, stratified. So there's probably going to be multiple levels of SLA. Yeah, you so you can pay for, pay for a better one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, people expect it's available 100% of the time, but I mean, that's just not realistic. I mean, even even my phone here at my house, I mean, in reality, there is a service mm-hmm. level agreement on that, and it's it's pretty lousy, yet I mm-hmm. have an expectation that it's pretty much available all the time. Yep. Uh, and there are the odd scenarios where, you know, things could happen where I could lose my phone for a while, but sure. in, in general, uh, <laughs> that just tends not to happen. Yeah, and if you look at the way the the infrastructure is is built out, just because of the way that replication and everything works, the data is typically going to be available at the data center and and out to you. the The challenge comes in is that there's local variables. Obviously, you can't account for the switch goes down in your office. Someone yeah. runs a backhoe through, uh, you know, one of the fiber optic lines, something like that, and you go offline. Now. We know that that's a challenge in services today. One of the one of the things, or one of the capabilities that we've looked at and we've invested a lot in, actually, is in around the data sync, and the data sync being one of those ways that you can mitigate that. So the idea behind the Microsoft Sync framework, and uh, you might have heard the term Project Huron, it was kind of announced at PDC, um, is the ability to take that data that you have, and while it's up and available, you synchronize locally. So if something happens, you know, you lose the connection, you step on a plane, someone runs a backhoe through the fiber optic line, you can still work locally, you still have some functionality, some utility with your data, and then you connect back up and you actually sync those changes to the cloud. And the cloud is really great in the sense, and SQL data services specifically, because it solves that problem of the rendezvous. Yeah. You know, if you wanted to sync two things together previously, you always had to know when those things were going to be available so that they could find each other. Well, you can generally kind of assume that that service is going to be available if there's an Internet connection. Yeah. And then you sync that data up, and then somebody else or your another partner or your peer or whatever the app is, it can go up to that ser- same service without having to rely that you're online. So it's a very powerful capability, and it's exactly one of the things that we're investing in for just that reason. Availability also, can always be there. I also find myself preaching to uh, DBAs and developers regularly at the moment in terms of trying to think in terms of disconnected applications and or message-based architectures because mm-hmm. I find that people tend to build a thing that's a bit like a house of cards where everything has to be working or nothing works. And yep. I, I think this is going to push us even further down that path where, uh, again, I was imagining um, where you were describing uh, like a mortgage application. Um, g- good example of that, I was doing some work for a mortgage, mortgage broker firm recently. And, mm-hmm. in fact, what amazed me is they had major performance problems and they were using merge replication. But what intrigued me is they would start with a small thing, which was a, a loan application or a mortgage application, and they would break it into 50 or 60 tables in a local application 
And then they were trying to use merge replication to merge those 60 or so tables across everybody else that was involved in the merge replication. And mm-hmm. what they had done, and whenever it was looking for sync things and so on, it was a huge, huge task. And yet, in the end, what was actually moving was a tiny little message saying, you know, here are the details of this mortgage application. And right. in fact, the solution was to stop doing the merge of all of the results of the thing, but to end up just doing the merge of the details of what the transaction actually was. And and so, again, it's kind of a, like a re-architect thing. But I, I, I can't help think that sort of message-based architectures and things will become just way more important again. Um, I'm imagining that if I build an application, it's going to be far more important for me to construct a message and send it into something in the cloud and I really want to be able to process it in the cloud. And mm-hmm. and if need be, there are messages that come back to me. But I, I'm not sure that the the communications that go to and fro down the track will actually be like current T-SQL transactions. I think they're much more likely to be message-oriented. And, and it's entirely possible. Yeah, no, the you point out, very good problems in there, and and like I, like I said, the folks on the data sync uh, side of the house have been looking at this and figuring out ways to kind of shield you from some of the complexity of what of what you would have to do to do that kind of merge replication. Figure out the details. How do you do things like conflict resolution? Uh, you know. And, and how do you get all these things working together and, and try to make it kind of orthogonal to mm. the actual app itself so you don't have to take a dependency on the sync framework to have your app work. It works, you know, in conjunction with it. So yeah, it's a, it's a sticky problem. And, and at some point you, you look at it and you say, have we introduced more complexity? And so what was this? We understood client server. We understood distributed systems within the data center. Uh, um, now have we introduced a new layer of complexity here? I'm, I'm uh, sure we have. I mean, I, I in a sense, service, we have. Service broker. And service broker is a technology that I love. The, the things I think were missing uh, were tooling and prescriptive guidance on how to use it. Um, and, and I think that's the only reason there hasn't been. Uh, and also the people building the apps are not used to building message-based um systems in the first place. Yet mm-hmm. the thing that any of those sort of things provide is the ability to have any of the servers up or down at any point in time or connected or not, in the end gives you a, it's a more complex application to build, but it gives you a dramatically more reliable application. Sure. Definitely. And so, yeah, I, I suspect that these things have exactly the same possibilities uh, down the track. Look, yep. that's getting us towards time. Um what I'm sort of interested in also is like, what, what do people do next if they want to try this? Or, uh, as I said, I think the PDC video would probably be a good starting point. Uh, yeah. But uh, apart from that, what sort of things should they do or try or how do they get involved or where will they see you or, or anybody? Uh, yeah, no, I would, I would say definitely, um, you know, take a look at the PDC videos. There's... Channel 9 has done a fabulous job of putting them out there, very easy to navigate, great experience to watch those videos and catch up on kind of where we're at in terms of the Azure Services platform and SQL Data Services in particular. Um, however, I'd also take a look at the Azure Services training kit. 
which has been published out on the uh, Download Center, and it's linked in through any number of the of the download sites. I think you can find it at, from Azure.com. Just click through some of the links out there at the Dev Center, and, and you'll see it. And in that training kit, there are just tons of hands-on labs for all of the services, and you can walk through kind of at your own pace and get and and get your hands dirty with this code. Now, today there is a provisioning process where you need to request a token. So you go to Microsoft Connect. There's a there's a place where you register, and they're very fast for .NET and SQL services yep. uh, to get those ter- tokens turned around. In some cases, it's hours, maximum a day or two at the most. And once you have that token, it grants you access to create a solution and to create an account. And you can run through any of these hands-on labs then using that um, that account that you've set up. And that just gives you some great experience to see where you're at, what kind of applications you build. Mm. Next, I would say, you know, go into the .NET user groups and into, you know, your local your local areas if you have the MSDN events coming, things like that, and just start looking at this stuff. I mean, really keep your eye on it. If you're thinking about new applications, definitely keep your eye on this space because it just makes a ton of sense to look at this and design for the cloud versus you know, doing what you traditionally do and then finding yourself year or two from now with a very successful application that you can't scale. And there's this whole world of cloud services out there that would really help if you would have just changed your design a little bit or not made some assumptions about certain things being true always. If yeah. you had to uh, look in your crystal ball, <laughs> the, mm-hmm. I suppose one of the questions that would come up for, say, the DBAs listening to the program is... Mm-hmm. Is this a big threat to people who look after databases and things in-house in the future? No, um, I, I don't believe so. I think the role of people, you know, having to patch the machine and, you know, worry about the different spindles and where to put the logs and the things like that, yeah, that's definitely a threat. You might not have to do that anymore. However there's always going to be a role for the data architects and the DBAs to correctly implement the, the data uh, architecture. You know, you can do whatever you want with an application, but if you screw up the data architecture, you're going to have bad performance. You're going to, I mean, you you can lose data. You can get the wrong results. I mean, there's all sorts of problems that you can have. So there's still I sort of wonder if, if they need to be moving more towards data modeling or things like that. It, they they might be. I mean, your skill set. If if you were nothing but you know very narrowly focused into a certain skill set of of T SQL or or you know uh, <laughs> certain features that are on on premises only, you know, yeah. server side cursors, things like that. Yeah, well, you, maybe there might be some problems over in the, in the cloud services side. But it, it fundamentally, if you know how the data works and if you know how to design a system uh, for scale and for and for you know, just ease of use through the front end, um, there's always going to be a role here. And it doesn't really matter what the data store is. And you can be sure that as more and more features come into SQL services, uh, SQL data services, and they introduce more and more of those relational features, well, the model's simple today, but typically the complexity goes up as you add features. So you're always going to need people that understand the right way to use those features. 
Excellent. If you only understand one or two of the features, I mean, you see the applications that are built that are just, well, they understood one or two concepts, but they didn't quite get all of the other features that they could be doing. Yeah. And, you you know, everything looks like a nail when you have a hammer. you yeah. you got to have people really understand and do the correct thing. Great. Well, listen, thank you so very much for your time today. Oh, I appreciate it. Uh, you know, this was this has been great. Thanks for inviting me. Indeed.